I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connections, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, you know the drill. Another spectacular episode for this week's podcast. I hope you all know when I'm saying that I am not tooting my own horn. I am just highlighting the incredible people that have agreed to be part of this podcast series. And so that's just what I'm referring to. And this week is no exception. My guest for today is Dr. Adele LaFrance, and wait till you all hear what she has to talk about. We talk about a model that she has created for working with families called Emotion-Focused Family Therapy. We talk about psychedelics and eating disorders and psychedelics and healing. We talk about love. We talk about spirituality. It is unbelievable everything that Adele has shared in this episode. I feel like you are going to feel the connection between Adele and I, and I just want to say this was our first time talking, and I felt love and soulful connection between her because we were both so present. And the reason why I'm saying that is you are never going to find love and connection in an eating disorder. You find it by sitting with somebody, looking into their eyes, looking into their soul, and having an open heart and being present, not by a behavior. All right, this is a really, really fun one. So let's just dive right into it. Here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. You all have no idea what we're in for for this episode. My guest for today is Dr. Adele LaFrance. Adele, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Karen. I'm really happy to be here. I am so happy to have you because we are going to be talking about some really powerful interventions and it is, it is so important to bring for, for people to hear about, we're going to be talking about family work. We're going to be talking about psychedelics. We're going to be talking about love and spirituality. So we've, we've got a lot to cover. So could you introduce yourself to the listeners and let them know who you are and all of the amazing things you've been working on? Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Um, uh, so I'm a psychologist. I'm from Canada, but now uh, based out of the United States. And uh, for a number of years, I've been working on the development of treatment modalities for eating disorders and other uh, mental health issues. Since about 2014, I've been really interested in the potential for psychedelic medicine in the same. And, you know, also just a human trying to figure out this humaning, which is not always easy. And you know something, that's where we're all trying to go for the same common goal, whether it's therapist, psychologist, client, Mm -hmm. family, we're all just trying to figure this out. And if we come from there, we can actually have compassion. So Adele, I, I think what I'd love you and I talked a little bit before, why don't, could you start by explaining to everybody what emotion focused family therapy, the model, what it's about. I am really big in bringing the family system in. 
Um, I'm also really big on not blaming the family system. Mm -hmm. This model does not blame. It does also, it's curious though about the whole family system and how can we empower everyone? So can you share a little bit about it or a lot about it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in my early days, I was first trained in family-based treatment, FBT, and, um, you know, it was really wonderful. That was my first entry, you know, formally into family work. I, I saw that I had very many biases against parents, against family work in general, and, you know, going through that process of learning the model and implementing the model helped me to see families in a completely new light. And so I was really committed to family work, but um, I was working primarily in higher levels of care and, and FBT is developed for you know outpatient primarily, though there have been adaptations. And there were some families who were just not responding in the way that would be typical. And I was, um, confused. I was curious. I was frustrated. I felt hopeless at times, you know, in terms of how to reach some of these family members who I could tell really cared about their child. But when, when it was time to implement some of the home-based interventions, the renourishment, the symptom interruption, for whatever reason, they just couldn't do it. And, you know, in our supervision groups, we would often hear people say, oh, that parent just doesn't get it, or, you know, they just don't care about this or that. And I had been trained as a humanistic psychologist. And so I really struggled to kind of reconcile what we were seeing and these fundamental principles that everyone is doing the best that they can and that everyone is good and wants to do good, you know? And so I started doing some research to understand what might be going on. And what I found was that there was no such thing as an unmotivated parent who didn't get it. That when parents or other caregivers either resisted supporting their loved ones in the way that were thought to be most helpful or interfered, you know, with interventions, they were doing so because of really significant, intense fears that something worse could happen to their child if they did. The most common being if they push their child too hard, too fast, that their child would become so distressed that they would become suicidal. And that was a huge turning point for me in my career, both as a psychologist and as a researcher, because it meant that we needed to develop interventions to support caregivers with their fears and also their self-blame. That was a finding that also emerged from some of the research that the more parents and caregivers blame themselves, the more they experienced blame from others, the more they were afraid that if they got involved and it didn't go well, they would be to blame, the less empowered they felt, the more likely they were to accommodate or enable symptoms. And so I really wanted to kind of build on the great work that was already done in the field of eating disorders, but include more to support caregivers to move through what we call some of these emotional blocks. At the same time, I felt that there could be more done to support the emotional roots of the illness. And so EFFT not only comprises a module on supporting behavior, having caregivers support their loved one's behavioral interventions, but also supporting their emotion processing because we know that that's a risk factor common across all eating disorder presentations. We developed a module to um, heal family wounds that could get in the way of the um, other types of support that caregivers were providing. Or um, if, the, if the loved one who was struggling with an eating disorder suffered with a lot of self-blame themselves, we wanted to help lift that self-blame so that they could be more open, more feel more deserving of accepting help from others. And then a couple more modules to help caregivers work through blocks and one really special module to help clinicians work through their own blocks. You know, either their belief in caregivers or their belief in themselves, any potential situation internally 
that could affect their implementation of the treatment, regardless of what they are delivering, whether it's EFT or something else. So that's kind of broad strokes the model. And, and, and it's absolutely incredible. I mean, I've done a, I've done a lot of research on it and, and seen a lot of your work. And there, there are so many directions I want to go in right now, Adele, that I, I'm, you're just going to have to excuse me for a moment. I need to like gather my thoughts. For some reason, the first thing that's coming to my mind is it not only takes blame off parents, but it also takes the quote unquote identified patient off of the client with the eating disorder. Because again, we're not saying the family caused it, but what we're saying is, is nobody lives in a bubble. There is always an overlap of relationships, messages, things like that. And so injury, emotional injury, was not caused by usually a singular event. Sometimes it does. And neither is the healing. The, so, so you bring in these other caregivers that can be part of this big, great, like for the greater good, a bigger purpose than just have my son or daughter teach them how to eat, teach them how to stop purging, teach them how to, you know, whatever it is. This is strengthening the whole family system and sometimes strengthening it you sometimes you might even have to crumble it a little bit, like undo. Do you see, does that make sense? Do you know it? Of course, of course. I mean, just if we look at our social conditioning around emotion, you know, emotion processing. Uh, if, if I ask a, a room full of 500 people, what's your impulse in, in terms of a response when your child says to you, I'm a loser at school, nobody likes me. 480 of them are gonna say something like, that's not true. Why would you feel that way? I think you're awesome. You know, these are, this is cultural conditioning. And while emotion processing difficulties are common across eating disorders, so are temperamental um, vulnerabilities, neurobiological vulnerabilities, genetic markers. But the reason why I focus so much on emotion processing is because it's a factor that we can actually target and transform today. You know, we can't change the media overnight with regards to how they make us feel about our bodies. We can't do gene editing at this time. And there are all kinds of ethics related to that. We can't change the past, you know, the history of challenges or potential traumatic events. But what we can do is that we can change emotion processing, both in the individual and in their system. And so when we talk about blame, you know, to me, the concept of blaming parents just makes no sense because of the multifactorial nature of eating disorders. And also when we look at the society in which we find ourselves and we look back three generations and we look at illness or struggle in that context, it really just doesn't hold, you know? So the, the concept of blame for me is relevant in that I want to help people to not blame themselves. And I wanna help people not blame others. Um, but beyond that, you know, it, this is life. This is where we're at. You also, and forgive me for interrupting, you talk about validating. And so going back to that example, you said, like, if, if you're in a paraphrasing, like your child comes home from school and says, I'm a loser, instead of just telling them otherwise, no, you're not, you're great. You know, don't feel this way. You, you listen to it and you validate it and you say, this is how it feels. That must be really hard. You're already creating an opening. Did I do I have that correct from what I remember? Yeah, yeah. So validating in our model means uh, conveying to the other that you can understand their perspective, and you give a couple of examples to kind of prove that you can get it from their perspective. And so, if we use an example like you know, um, I don't want to eat that, which is so common in the context of eating disorders, most people's knee-jerk response, socially conditioned would be, well, you have to, you're underweight, food is medicine, you know, et cetera. Um, but the brain doesn't like that kind of response. And so what we know about the neuroscience of validation is that if you say, I can understand why you would want to eat that because, you know, bread has been a feared food of yours for a long time and because you feel like you've already eaten too much and because you're terrified of gaining weight. When you make those three because statements, 
the alarm bells in the brain actually quiet themselves. It's like, oh, okay, you're feeling it. You're hearing it. You don't have to agree. And the next sentence could still be, I believe in you. You know, I know that you can get through this meal and I'm going to be here to support you. But you've created optimal brain conditions that will be more amenable to redirection. And it also strengthens the relationship. So that's the, you know, major, major bonus here. I think you used a metaphor about when somebody makes a comment like, I can't do this. You said it's as if they're in an elevator and there's like 10 floors in the building and they're already on the 11th floor or something. And Mm -hmm. so just saying like, yes, you can, that is not going to bring their, their energy, their anxiety, any of that down. No, if, if they're, if their distress is mild, then you know, our society has been trained to lead with reassurance, cheerleading and problem solving. If distress is mild, that works. It's good enough. But if distress is moderate to severe, then it can actually create um, a stickier stuck response if we use some of those kind of uh, more common techniques. What are some of the other tools that you that you I'm going to use the word teach or you guide mm-hmm, yeah. parents. And and by the way, I also want to be very clear. We're talking about supports. So it doesn't have to be a biological parent. And also when we're talking, or at least from my perspective, when we're talking about a client, it's not always a young client. Like a support can be your spouse. It can be your roommate. It can be. So I just wanted to make sure we were, you know, this isn't just talking about working with teens and adolescents. hundred percent. Like I remember I was speaking to, uh, you know, this very well-known, um, therapy developer in North America and explaining to him the rationale for the model. And he said, so wait, what you're saying here is that even if it's a 40 year old man, you want to bring in his wife and parents to offer support. I'm like, yep, that's exactly what we're talking about because the brain responds most to those people, even if those people have said or done things that have been problematic in the past, um, those relationships, because of the attachment bond, are going to be the most powerful, you know, for for change. Even if it requires a little cleanup, you know, before before we get started. So yeah, when we talk about caregiver, it's anyone who cares for or cares about the person who's suffering. Um, who's also an adult themselves. It also, you know, I've had, I've, I've supervised a lot of, a lot of clinicians and they say the family system is so broken and so bad. It would probably not be in the client's best interest to bring say the parents in. And I say, if the family system is this broken, then we, absolutely need to bring in the family system. It doesn't mean we can't repair. It doesn't mean that we, so to just simply say, you know what, it's not. I also do want to point out there are some situations where it wasn't in the client's best interest to reconnect with, with certain members or whatnot. But in general, I, I wonder if sometimes young clinicians fear mm-hmm. j- jumping into the messiness of, of, and I'm going to, I'm going to say the word dysfunctional families, but so now I'm talking about all families because we're all dysfunctional. Yeah. I mean, we can say dysfunctional dynamics, you know? Uh, so yeah, I think you touched on a number of really important issues. One is that there are clinician fears and also clinician lack of experience and lack of, lack of experience is not a reason not to provide, you know, clients with what we think could be best. And so sometimes people need to do a bit more training other two things, though, I'd like to comment on is one, it sometimes can be a reflection of our privilege. And so we feel more comfortable with what we perceive to be as healthier dynamics. Um, and so, you know, if there's a lot of criticism in a family, and this was a reflection of my privilege early on, like, oh, that parent's super critical. I really don't think it's a good idea to have them in the same room, you know, where the culture in, in their family was different. But and it was more like, okay, no, I felt uncomfortable with criticism. And I had this narrative that criticism was, um, was a dynamic that was like irreparably destructive, you know, and guess what? It's not. And criticism is really different in different cultures. It's not optimal, 
but it's not a reason to exclude. And then the other piece I would say is that I have heard many, many times over the years, I really don't think that this family is well enough or strong enough, um, you know, to, to be able to do this work. And when I think about who those families are, oftentimes they are people who have experienced intergenerational trauma, systemic racism, or who have been ostracized in other ways um, in our culture, in our society. And so for me, bringing families together in the ways that make the most sense, they don't have to all come into the room. Not everyone has to be involved at the same time. We can get really, really creative, but doing this kind of work becomes an act of advocacy. You know, it's a, for me, it's a social cause just as much as it is um, delivery of treatment. And in families where there have been the most difficulty, very small changes can be life-changing for generations. That is my belief. And so sometimes I'll say to, you know, the families who are well-educated, who have, who have been spared for the most part of, you know, serious trauma exposure, I'll sometimes say to them, you'll have to do more to kind of see the same kind of benefit. Whereas other families where been, there's been a lot of pain, there's been a lot of suffering, a little bit goes a really long, long way. So yeah, I, I feel strongly about finding creative ways to do it in the best way possible, given the circumstances. It reminds me, I was at a conference once, and, and I'm sure people have heard this metaphor before, but I use it often with clients who are like, I've barely made any changes. And I'm like, you've, you've, you've made changes. That's what's most important. And the metaphor was, if you put a boat in the water and it's, yep, it's going in one direction. If you change it literally like a quarter of an inch, it's going to end up in a totally different destination. And so that's what we're talking about with little changes. I do think there is a misconception of like the quick fix in therapy and fix this person and fix that. And, and it's not about fixing. Again, it's navigating, changing course a little bit. And that small, just like you said, that one small shift could change patterns dramatically in the long run. We call it the one degree effect. And sometimes the therapist or the clinician will get to see the fruits of that one degree effect during their course of treatment with the family. Sometimes they won't, but we always trust that it will happen, which makes it so that we never give up on the family. Let's shift a little bit from the supports and talk about clients. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about, you know, you, you know, you, you've also talked about how when a client is refusing to have a support or a parent or partner come in, there's so much underneath that. There's, you know, what, what if they, what if, what if I make things worse, just like the parents feel, That's what right. if they, you know, the shame attached to it. Also, I want to say as someone who's fully recovered, I probably didn't want my parents to know that much because then they would have known that much. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, cause I had to live under their roof when I had my eating disorder. So talk a little bit about like, about that from a client's perspective. Yeah. So, um, I was doing trainings in EFFT, really championing caregiver involvement. And the most common question or comment I would get would be, well, my client does not want caregiver involvement. They're an older adolescent or an adult. And so I need to respect their capacity to make these kind of choices in a manner that's autonomous. I thought, okay, well, how do, how do I argue with that? You know, because now we're talking about ethics. We're talking about consent. We're talking about confidentiality. And that can be a minefield in and of its own, right? And so I thought, well, geez, I know this, I know the science of emotional blocks for caregivers. I know it applies to um, others suffering as well. And so what I started to do is I started to interview um, men and women struggling with an eating disorder who did not want caregiver involvement. And I'd ask them, you know, why? but genuinely, you know, with a real curious, open heart, you know, talk to me about why. And I remember this one uh, woman, multiple hospitalizations, uh, really, really stuck dynamics of symptoms, 
And she was really, really struggling. And she said, well, um, I really want my recovery to be my own. Said, okay, I get that. And that makes a lot of sense, you know, especially in North American culture. Um, why else? Well, my parents were involved when I was a teenager and it didn't go well. Okay, so then there's, you know, there's this fear that it could not go well again. And when we followed that uh, route, she shared that um, a therapist had encouraged her to identify situations in her life that she felt may have been a trigger for her eating disorder. And at first she couldn't think of any from childhood related to her family, but then she thought of one that could be a trigger. And so she was encouraged to share that trigger in a family session. And her mom was devastated, felt really, really bad and started to cry. And so I said to the client, I said, if I know a little bit about some of the vulnerabilities that people have, you know, who have eating disorders, I would imagine that her tears were like acid on your skin. She said, yes. Being exposed to her mother's deep regret, her deep sorrow, her deep grief, and it wasn't pathological self-blame, it didn't sound like it, you know, was too much for her nervous system because she was such a super feeler that she couldn't bear to be exposed to her mom's pain, you know, related to this potential trigger that we do, you know, and so she was like, that was it. She lost trust in the family work um, and didn't want to go there again. So I said to her like, well, what if, what if someone would have worked with your mom beforehand and shared with her the trigger and helped her process some of those very normal feelings that parents have, you know, of regret, of grief, you know, and she would have been able to meet you in a different way. How do you think that would have changed, you know? And so I was really inspired to develop an intervention where we could support individuals who were refusing caregiver involvement to have a deeper understanding of what might be fueling it, fear or shame, or even unprocessed anger related to um, some unfinished business in the family. And we trialed it uh, with 32 older teens and adults who were initially refusing caregiver involvement. It's a 20 minute intervention. And out of those 32 people, after one experience of the intervention, two experiences or three experiences of this 20 minute intervention, 28 out of 32 agreed to some kind of family involvement, whether it was in the family session or you know, we were allowed to work with the parents separately or some, some other variation of it, 28 out of 32. And so that made me think like, okay, when we are respecting our clients' wishes regarding caregiver involvement, we might actually be respecting their wishes um, to avoid patterns that are fueling the illness. And so as a field, I think we have some work ahead to be able to kind of ensure that we're both respecting our clients' wishes and their capacity for decision-making and also um, exploring these decisions in a way that allows for us to um, get at what might be underneath in case there is some movement there that's possible. And this is also why the process takes so long, because you have to sometimes do it really slowly. And forgive me, I don't know why I keep going into supervising younger clinicians today, but for some reason that's on my mind, that they're very, they can be very quick to move past things like, okay, ask that question, check that box. Mm -hmm. And that could have been two or three sessions of unpacking why that client, not only unpacking it, but also being curious about it and understanding, okay, what if we did it in a different way? Just like you had said, what if the parent, what if your mom had been talked to prior? I, when I sense a client is stuck, meaning I feel like there's a lot more underneath what their answer is. I have them say a statement and then I say, and then what? They say this, another statement, and then what? 
another statement, and then what? And and really, I think you have to explain that to a client before, because otherwise I think that sounds pretty annoying. But if you stay with it, that's when you get to those pearls of suffering, wisdom, healing, all of it, mm-hmm. which is, this is what happened once, and I can't tolerate it again. Oh, okay. Let's start there. That's what your model is doing, Adele. That is, it, it is amazing. And, and we give scripts to parents who are wired for tears. So in that mom's case, you know, um, she may not have understood the impact on her daughter's nervous system, right? And so we teach them like, okay, do you think your kid's a super feeler? If so, to what extreme? Um, how do they react when, when you have emotion or when you cry? Okay, here's what you can say so that it doesn't, you know, scare them or make it so that they withdraw and that you could still be you. You can still be a normal feeling, you know, human being in this messy, you know, space. And also how do we help the client tolerate that mom is human and allowed to have an emotional response? Yeah. It's so, it's so complicated and multi-layered. Yeah. And you know, uh, parent blame is not dead in our healthcare system, in our mental healthcare system. And so when, when parents or other caregivers show up with defensiveness or they show up critical, you know, or they show up in denial or with avoidance, that didn't happen in isolation. You know, that didn't happen in a vacuum. We're all, contributors to those dynamics. Um, when I think about, you know, my first developmental psychopathology course, I mean, parent blame wasn't explicit in the pages, but it sure was implicit in between the lines. And so I just feel like it is our collective responsibility to see some of these more challenging dynamics um, in the light in which they make the most sense which is broad uh, systems. And I mean, anyone who's had a child struggling knows that it, it affects us deeply. So when, when, when parents or caregivers have a loved one who's struggling, they struggle too, they suffer too. They get desperate, they say things, you know, they get the blinders on, it's normal. I also want to share an experience, and I think I've, I've said this before on the podcast. And, you know, and, Again, it goes back to if we if we don't support the whole system, then the parents will be stuck in this. I'm just going to use, for lack of a better term, walking on eggshells. So then the child responding to that energy and all this stuff. My parents, and forgive me for those of you who've heard this before, my parents, you know, 30 years ago, 31 years ago, they didn't they didn't know really what an eating disorder was. And so my parents went to one family support group and only one. And the reason why is because it was a very inexperienced, either inexperienced, I want to be very careful because I don't, I don't mean to blame the clinician, but I just, it was a, a clinician that let a really powerful emotion fall into the middle of the room, which was shame. Mm. So my parents were in this group and my mother who loves me more than anything in the world. Here I am, her 19 year old daughter, and I won't eat a morsel without crying, exercising, laxatives. And so my mother said, sometimes I want to take care and just shake her. And another woman said in the group, shame on you. How could you ever want to hurt your child? And the therapist never said anything. She just let that blame and criticism fall flat. And then they moved on to a new topic. My parents didn't want to hurt me. They were terrified. What's underneath wanting to shake your child? Yeah. You know, that's why it's so important. We say, and then what, or because why, or say more about that. Exactly. That's our responsibility, Adele. That's my, that's my feeling. Yeah. And, and, you know, you mentioned the inexperienced therapist, but with the research that I conducted on clinician blocks showed that um, it wasn't a function of therapist experience, that the experience of clinician blocks was true across one's career, that really the only criterion was whether or not you were human. Um, And when we work in high stakes 
clinical situations like with eating disorders, we become more vulnerable. And so it really is important for us as clinicians to continue with our professional development and also with an exploration of our own triggers in the context of our professional work, because that old adage of leave your shit at the door, now that we understand the nervous system in a way that we've never understood it before, it makes zero sense. Our stuff is with us in session, no matter what, and suppression and repression only goes so far. I feel it's, it's our duty actually to maintain a very healthy practice of, of personal healing and growth. I agree. I agree. You know, I, I, I'm so enjoying this part of the conversation, although I do want to make sure we get in some other really, really important work that you're doing. So is there anything, and by the way, we can always come back to everything, but anything else that you want to say about this part, because now we're going to, we're going to take a turn. We're still working with families, but now we're talking about psychedelics. So is there anything before we shift? Well, I guess the one thing I would say is that the tools and the techniques and the strategies that have been developed, including in the context of EFFT, don't always work. Um, they don't, we are, I'm not always able to reach caregivers in a good way. I'm not always able to reach their kids in a good way. And that's actually why I became so interested in the potential of psychedelic medicine, because I found that conventional treatment as it is today only goes so far for a subset of pop of our population who deserves healing and growth as much as anyone else. And so that's kind of how I came to take this interesting right turn <laughs> in terms of my professional work. Yeah. So where do we even begin talking about it? Because, you know, some people consider it a taboo. Some people consider it frightening. Some people consider it spiritual and wonderful and opening. So where do, where do we begin? Well, yeah, I would say that if anyone is experiencing it negatively, you have every reason to experience it negatively because historically, when you look at uh, the use of psychedelics, both in and out of medicinal contexts, there have been some really irresponsible practices. Uh, there have been individuals who have experienced really serious um, side effects and um, quality of life issues. Um, there have been lots of political challenges. And so I, I, when I first started hearing about the potential for psychedelics, I was in that camp. So I do have a lot of, well, real lived experience, uh, you know, feeling these feelings. Like I didn't see that these drugs could have any potential impact. They were to be avoided, especially because they impacted your brain. Um, and so I went really carefully and uh, really focused on the research and the science and also had some lived experiences where I got to see like, okay, if done correctly and, and, and cautiously, these medicines have the power to bring healing to so many who are unable to find the right fit in the system we've currently got. Um, and now my work over these last number of years has been to try to delineate those conditions, especially in the context of eating disorders, because that's where my heart beats the strongest, you know, is, is in this field. And so um, I've completed studies looking at the potential for ayahuasca, which is a South American tea, which is a psychedelic uh, tea that's been used for many, many, many years by uh, different indigenous cultures. Um, I'm leading a study looking at MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for eating disorders. I'm a collaborator on a study looking at psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy for anorexia nervosa. And I just completed a research project with another colleague on the potential for emotion-focused ketamine-assisted psychotherapy uh, for major depressive disorder and also for anorexia nervosa. And um, yeah, it's been, it's been quite a ride. I've learned a lot. There's more to learn, but I'm really excited about what's possible. 
I don't know why this is my first question. This is the most random question, but is there an age minimum to do any kind of psychedelic treatments? Like, is it something like they have to be 18 or older? Can you do it on a 15 year old? And forgive me, that's the most random place to start, but that's where my mind went. It's probably the the question I get via email the most often, you know, from people who are desperate to support their loved ones. So uh, our studies are, are for the most part, um, well, the MDMA study is an FDA approved study, the psilocybin study likewise. And so we have to go through ethics and we have to set minimum, we have to set uh, age limits. And we decided that for these studies um, that 21 would be the uh, minimum age because there is so much yet to learn about the impact on the brain. And so we felt comfortable with that, with that age. Um, but if you look, if you go into indigenous cultures, I spent a month in Peru this past December doing some of my own personal healing. One of the shamans had his young son there and they, they are um, allowed to drink a small amount of the medicine uh, when they turn eight years old which is pretty remarkable. And there was another family who was there and their son had um, some pretty serious health issues and they gave him a little bit to drink, you know? So it's, we're learning a lot from indigenous cultures. And also we need to, we need to make sure that a, we don't go too far with taking what we learn in a, in a, in a way that's not respectful and finding a way for it to fit into our culture. But uh, generally speaking with these medicines in the context of studies, you're generally looking at around um, 21 years of age. Can you explain to people what exactly is the function of doing a psychedelic? Like what happens in the brain? What happens in the heart? All these things. And there's another direction I want you to go into after, which is you have three models and, and maybe more, but one for the client to do it, one for the client to do it with their supports, and one for the client. And I love the the surrogate. The if the if the client is not, do I have that correct? I hope there's I one do. other I, model. There's one other model, but yeah, yeah, I'm happy to talk about them for sure. Well, how it works. So, I mean, these different substances have different qualities. Um, they work differently, you know. So, for example, MDMA is considered um, an empathogen an intactogen, it's not a classic psychedelic, like ayahuasca or LSD or, or psilocybin would be considered. Ketamine is actually not even a psychedelic per se, although oftentimes we refer to it as a psychedelic because it can lead to psychedelic experiences, but it's actually a dissociative anesthetic. Um, but if I were to think about each of these substances, you know, as a collective unit, what they have in common is that they, uh, they give us a break from our regular ways of thinking and seeing ourselves and others, which allows for the um, creation of new pathways neurobiologically and also psychologically, the development of new insights, new ways of seeing the world in a way that's better, more health-focused. Another, another uh, quality that these, medicines have in common is that they are thought to activate the inner healing intelligence of the body when it comes to our psychology. Um, just like when we get a cut or scrape, our body activates a system that leads to spontaneous healing so that eventually there's nothing more of that cut or scrape. Um, there's an, there's a, a theory and understanding that these medicines activate that potentially stuck inner healer so that it can um, engender a cycle of processes that can allow the person to move towards health and wellness in a way that they couldn't before. The other, maybe third one I'll talk about is, well, maybe two more, uh, is that um, these medicines create an opportunity for neuroplasticity, which means in the days that follow usage, if you do some really good therapy, that really good therapy is more likely to stick. Um, and then the other piece is that these medicines afford us opportunities to have embodied experiences of our essential qualities in a way that um, many can't access 
without. And so I'll give you an example. It's a woman with an eating disorder who, who said that she'd spent years using positive affirmations about herself, about her body to help get through, you know, moments of darkness and of really like ruminative dark thoughts. And she drank ayahuasca in a ceremonial setting and she experienced herself as beautiful and as lovable in a way that could never be shaken. And so she didn't have to use affirmations. She only needed to remember to remember the feeling in her body. And it was such a true feeling. It was such an essential quality of hers that um, it moved from her mind firmly into her heart where it could not uh, be violated either by herself or by others. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's reminding me that this is very much like humanistic psychotherapy, which is if we remove all the layers of coding and go back to that core self, we have love, compassion, curiosity, no judgment, no labels, no blame. That's I, I don't know if, if if I'm just making that up and it doesn't really resonate, but that's all I can think of right now. That's right. Those are our essential qualities, you know, including spirituality, including belief in something bigger, including trust in life, which so many with, with uh, eating disorders, you know, they struggle to trust themselves, to trust others, to trust life, to trust food, to trust nourishment, you know? And so that is the beauty of these medicines is that it makes it so that even if there, even when there are kind of rigid brain structures, thought patterns that have been overused and overused and therefore more often used, it can override that in a way that I just haven't seen, you know, in, in the context of conventional psychotherapy. Could you explain, I thought there were three models, but you said there are four. So can you explain, because I'm sure people are fascinated by doing it alone, doing it with a support, having the support do it. And forgive me, I can't remember what the fourth model. No, are you kidding? You know more about my work than anyone who's ever interviewed me. And so I've just been like wildly impressed. And also it's just been so much fun. So Karen, no, that's amazing. It's fantastic. I love what you're doing. It just speaks to me so much. Oh my God. No, it's a pleasure. So, so the first model is the most traditional model, conventional model, I should say. And it's the model where the individual uses psychedelics with a therapist or a guide, you know, to, to support their own healing. It's the model that I'm the least in favor of. The next model, which is the model that I've um, integrated into my ketamine studies, my MDMA study, and the psilocybin folks are integrating into their study is where the individuals with the, with the eating disorder are going to be um, recipients of the medicine, but they identify a support person who is part of the journey um, all the way through. They attend this, the prep session. They have their own sidebar sessions to learn to validate and emotionally support their loved one when things get hard or if things get hard. You know, um, they participate in integration sessions so that we bring healing to the system. And we also bring a bridge from the healing in the office to the home setting. So that's um, caregiver supported um, psychotherapy model. Now, the other, the third one is where we have um, the person who's struggling use medicine with their loved one, with their parent, with their spouse. One of my dear friends in Toronto is doing this kind of couples work with MDMA and it's incredible. You know, she's, she's working with uh, couples where one participant has a serious treatment resistant PTSD and working with the couple to bring healing to the system. And it's, it's, I mean, it's one of the most exciting things that's going on, I think. And then the final model is the surrogate healing. And this I've, I've observed, I've been a witness to, you know, um, and it's really unbelievable where um, if for whatever reason, the person with the mental health issue or the person who's struggling is unable to take these medicines, either because of contraindications with other medicines or medical instability or fear that is so strong that there's just 
no way, you know, that they'll be able to do this. Um, in some situations, uh, it is possible for their parent or their spouse or their close other to engage in uh, what I refer to as surrogate healing. And I, I have a video clip of a, a mom and a daughter who share their experiences. Daughter had an eating disorder, wanted to come to a retreat, couldn't, was medically unstable. Mom came. And she came with the intention of learning how to support her daughter. Mom had actually coincidentally um, done some EFFT work, had gone through family-based programs, but was one of those families where despite everyone's best efforts, it just wasn't working. She ended up going to an ayahuasca retreat, got the downloads about what to do and how to do it, went home, did it, it worked. Her daughter ended up coming to the retreat the next year because she was medically stable and on her way towards health and wellness. And now the daughter is in medical school and doing beautifully. And so it's just a really inspiring kind of case study, I guess. I, I saw that video because <gasps> you used it, I think for one of your iAdept talks mm-hmm. and it's amazing. It is, I, I feel like it's, oh, I'm not going to explain this correctly. I feel like it just blasts, like it just blows away or off this, all this, all this extra stuff. It's, and this is not a very articulate way of saying it, but that's, that's probably the most accurate way of saying it. What you just said. <laughs> that's how it feels. Like I have to ask you, what is it like Adele to be an observer of some of these experiences? I, I feel tearful right now, just by the way you're explaining how some of these experiences that you've witnessed, what is it like? It makes it so that any of the fears of being judged for doing this kind of work become so minuscule that I want to dedicate my professional life to making these opportunities available for others, not just other clinicians, but other families and doing everything I can to support not just the decriminalization of these substances, but the legalization of these substances that they can be studied more easily. So much of this work has to be done abroad. um, But I can tell you that hearing about either firsthand or secondhand, these stories of healing, I mean, they just make me feel like we're all gonna be okay. (laughs) You know, we're gonna be okay. There's a lot of hope for so many of us, especially when you look at the potential of these medicines as uh, in the the context of um, conflict more broadly in our world. A couple of my colleagues have studied the potential of medicines in the context of um, Israeli and Palestinian conflict. And, you know, right now it's a, it's a very challenging time. I mean, that's the understatement of the year. Um, and so I think, I think we need to be open-minded about what's possible, but we also have to be really freaking careful because anytime we use consciousness altering substances, risks go up, you know? Um, So uh, there's a reason why so many of us are like being so careful in the context of our studies um, in terms of medical risks, psychological risks, but also risks relating to stigma that still exists, you know, Uh, because we've got, we've got a long way to go. So in fact, Karen, I want to thank you for actually having me on this podcast. You know, I know you have excellent um, an excellent, uh, what's the word? Not readership because people aren't reading it. What's the word for the podcast world? Listenership, but you, yeah, <laughs> so many listeners, you know, that it's going to help. It's going to help. It's going to, and the, the surveys of acceptability, even among those with eating disorders are showing that they're really open and interested, but they want to make sure that they're well taken care of medically and psychologically. Let me ask, where, so I know obviously, so ketamine can be administered here in the United States. 
can any of the other psychedelics, can ayahuasca or MD, like, can it, so it all has to be out of the country. So ayahuasca is legal in other countries, but not in Canada and the U.S. Um, MDMA and psilocybin, you know, it's only in the context of research studies at this time um, that it's legal. And so there are many barriers um, with, but I do think that the eating disorder community, because they are there, the eating disorder community is made up of such strong, intelligent, well-spoken advocates that um, I'm excited that so many research centers are focusing on eating disorders next, because I think together we're going to be able to pave a road that would have taken a lot longer in um, in other settings. I really believe in in our community. Yeah, we're a really passionate, mm-hmm. passionate community. So I I agree. I want to make sure, and and we we touched a little bit on it, but we're we're getting close to the end. We did want to talk about love and spirituality. So what what can we bring in about that? And I hope it's okay that I sort of changed courses yeah, a little bit. Of course. I just want to say one other thing about the uh, about the psychedelic use is that sometimes people, when they hear me speak or they hear others speak or they hear, hear about the research, they want to go and do underground work because this is happening underground. And I just want to caution people that, um, that uh, while there are many individuals who have reported positive experiences, using these substances in these settings. There are many, many more who we don't necessarily hear about who um, have not. And so, you know, I just want to put that out there. Okay. Love and spirituality. If gosh, what I've learned from my work with psychedelics in particular ayahuasca is that uh, experiences of love those embodied ones that I was talking about earlier, you know, seem to be incredibly powerful and healing. Um, Spiritual experiences are too. And so I was thinking about this the other day. I was like, okay, what can we learn from psychedelics for general psychotherapy? Well, in psychedelics, you know, Michael, Michael Pollan wrote in his book that, you know, uh, I can't remember what he said exactly. He said, love is everything. And he said, it's, it was embarrassing to even admit that because it seemed so banal was the word he used. Love is everything. And I'm like, oh, I totally get it because um, one of the perspectives is that psychedelics removes the blockages that make it so that, that make it so that, that, that make it so that you don't connect with love for yourself and others, um, or you have these experiences of ultimate love, you know, of yourself and others of God, of spirit, whatever you want to call it. And so I was thinking, well, huh, that's funny because in my work as an eating disorder clinician in conventional treatment programs, I don't think I ever told my clients that I loved them. I don't think we ever talked about that, you know? I think we talked about love between them and their family members or their friends. But gosh, we didn't use the L word very often. And we didn't really kind of explicitly pay attention to the blocks to love within themselves and others, at least not often enough, you know? And in MDMA, one of, one of the significant healing aspects of the experience in, in the, that kind of assisted psychotherapy is the love felt from the therapist. And it just made me realize that, you know, we could do more in this arena. And I get people's reluctance to resistance to, because many have been hurt in the name of love, including by their own therapists. Um, But I think that we can find ways to do it delicately, ethically, safely, and very powerfully so that we can finally admit, you know, we as clinicians that we love our clients and it's not an inappropriate kind of love. It's a human love. It's a, it's an ultimate love. It's a true you know, feeling of love just from human to human. So, so that's one of the kind of shout outs, I guess, that I want to make is like, let's, let's talk about love more often. And one of the things I want to add to that is it is when the client is the most vulnerable, most courageous, deepest in their distress and all of these things for them to feel the most seen and the most loved because all this, uh, typically 
That's what they don't want to show the world, right? right. That this is all this. So to allow it to be out there in the room and then have it received by the clinician loving you for it, that's, that's ultimate healing. Yeah. And we have difficulties with love as a culture, you know, like if I looked at you right now, Karen, and I'll do it, you know, just live here. And I just say like, Karen, I actually really love you as a human. I don't know you well, but I do feel the resonance, you know, and I really do love you. I feel the truth of it inside of me when I say it. And I also feel a tiny little squeeze in my tummy of like, Ooh, is that too much? Is that weird? You know, is she going to get what I mean? And so that cultural conditioning runs deep and we shouldn't expect that, that people are going to be like receiving it so well either. Right. So it needs to be, it needs to be gentle. It needs to be delicate, but it needs to be. I agree. It's, it is, we all crave it and, and love comes in many different forms. Mm -hmm. There's intimacy, physical love, family love, heartfelt love. Like it, it just, it we can keep going and going and going. And yet it is the thing we are most afraid to say because what will other think of it? Yeah. Yeah. And what if it's not reciprocal? You know, what if I'm not worthy of it? And people who have eating disorders, I've seen this tension the most significantly. They are dying for love and they are also so afraid of it. I know. Hmm. Is there anything before we start to wind down from this really beautiful episode that you wanted to incorporate with spirituality? Or do you feel like we've encompassed all with spirituality? Because we, we really, the whole talk has been sort yeah, of around no, I, just, I think it's important for us to support our clients to cultivate a spiritual life. You know, that's one of the other big teachings from the psychedelic research that I've conducted is that people, especially in people who did not have a spiritual life, I did a study where I interviewed 15 shamans and I asked them about their understanding of eating disorders from the shamanic perspective. And almost every single one of them talked about a spiritual void. And once again, when I reflect on my experiences working in conventional eating disorder treatment programs, there wasn't a real strong focus on spirituality. And there was that, that tension again, like, oh, well, if, if, you know, if they don't, if they don't bring it up, then you don't bring it up. If they bring it up, you can help them with it. And I think that's because we wanted to avoid um, getting in the muddy waters of religious trauma or religious dogma. And I think it's time for us to kind of, again, find a new pathway where we can talk about spirituality um, in a way that's not attached um, to religion, if that's something that is activating or, or, or difficult, you know, for some, but that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Although I hate that example, that expression. No, it's I, even mean. I, I say it, I said it before and I'm like, oh gosh, okay, you know, yeah. what it reminds me of though, real quickly. And then just how we were just saying, there's so many different forms of love. There's mm. so many different forms of spirituality. I think we're such a Westernized culture where we take things sometimes way too literally. And spirituality is, is, is so expansive. It, it can come from so much that it, it is, it, so I don't even know where I was going with that, but I, I do think that's Western culture's view. And I don't know if you, if you were going to add to that, cause you look like you were. Well, I mean, it's probably even a good way to end is that there's, there's this uh, indigenous prophecy of the eagle and the condor. And it's a prophecy that originates from South America. And it says that uh, starting in the 1400s, there's gonna be, uh, there, was, there was a huge um, obliteration of indigenous culture. And that the condor represents the indigenous people and the eagle represents um, the white people the people who've came, who came to conquer, okay? And the prophecy is that uh, over 500 years, it will be very challenging, very tumultuous time. The condor people will be nearly extinct or at least their cultures and their customs will be. But that starting in about the 1990s, 
There will be a recognition that the eagle cannot survive without the condor and that the condor are in a place where they are ready to share once more their medicine with the eagle people. And so the eagle people represent science, industry, intellect. The condor people represent instinct, love, spirituality. And so according to the prophecy, we're right in the very beginning stages of integrating um, the feminine and the masculine energies of the world where we are combining science with spirituality, where we're combining intellect with love, where we're combining indigenous with uh, contemporary conventional, you know, medical practices. Adele, I think that is a beautiful place to bring this podcast to an, to a close if you're okay with that. Cause I just, I want to, mm-hmm. I want to leave with that image because it's powerful and it's beautiful. And I cannot thank you enough for being on this show today. It has been an absolute pleasure. Again, I feel very tearful right now, really beautiful mm-hmm. tears. I feel very, it, my, my emotions are just kind of glowing right now. So I just, thank you. That's, that's just what I want to say for myself. Thank you. And thank you for all the listeners. Cause this is, this is powerful and valuable stuff. Thank you, Karen. Thanks for having me here today. It's been a delight. My pleasure. All right. All righty, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. I said that very slowly, everyone, so I apologize. I look forward to talking to you again. Take care. Bye-bye. To wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts, by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody, be well and thanks for listening to my bite for the week. <laughs>